Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to uh, James chapter 4. If you're new with us, we've been working our way this summer through the book of James, and we're getting towards the end of it. We just have a few more Sundays. Now, conflict and quarreling and fighting are just part of life. If you've lived it all, you know that's just part of life. You think of the workplace, and you know there can be conflict. Bosses that get upset and kind of explode in anger. Workers that have some resentments of not being treated fairly maybe simmering, maybe gathering kind of groups, kind of factions. The workplace can be a a nasty battleground of conflict. That's why we have all the, uh, you know, corporate mediation consultants that make big money. Of course, conflict is, uh, is in the home front. Domestic conflict is rampant. We have spouses that don't get along and argue. The same issues keep coming up in different ways. And siblings behaving like they hate each other. Flying off the handle with harsh words and verbal attacks. All of it fostering scars and and wounds that can last a lifetime. And And like the business world, the family counseling and mediation and Divorce lawyers are making a fortune on it. And then there's the church. Finally, a place of peace, right? Where people just get along, selflessly love each other, put aside our differences, and just sing songs in harmony. Well, not really, right? Although sometimes it can appear that way on the surface, like all things are, are just pretty good in the Christian family, especially if you're new. That's because of what I like to call the parking lot miracle. You guys know what the parking lot miracle is? It's been a rough morning. Had to get your teenagers out of bed. They weren't happy. There's a lot of yelling. You get in the car. Dad is angry. Mom's upset. Siblings are still going after each other. Then you hit the parking lot of the church. You open the door. Smiles come on your face. Somebody says, how are you? Dad says, great. It's a miracle. We have miracles every Sunday morning here. Of course, it's, it's not real. Christians and church life has been full of fighting and, and quarreling. From the start, you can think of Yodia and Syntyche and in Philippi, in the church of Philippi, and their struggles with each other. Paul and Peter and their struggles with each other. You think of this Hebrew church here and the infighting that's going on, all this struggling and strife. And you can go all the way down through the great, you know, church splits through the centuries. You know, that's how denominations get started. Churches fighting. You can go all the way down to today where churches have gone after each other over masks and vaccinations and it's been ugly 
and divisive. Quarreling and fighting can and often are part of church life. But it shouldn't be that way. And we know it shouldn't be that way. That's why we have the parking lot miracle. We're kind of demonstrating what we think it should be like at church. And James agrees that it shouldn't be that way. In this text, he challenges these Christians and us to be different from the workplace, from the world. In our community life, he challenges us to be different. He insists that we can be as we live in Christ. And he kind of shows us, and and this, uh, this little church, this little Hebrew church, the way. Now, my friends, I want to say before we jump into it that I don't think that uh, here at at CTR, Christ the Redeemer, uh, that we have a situation like this, really, this we see here in James. I don't think we have all the quarreling and, and, and infighting that we see here. But we have our issues in this family, and we all have them in our own family lives. We are all somewhere on the, the kind of peace and harmony to, you know, complete disruption scale, aren't we? We have a one over here being total fighting and relational disruption, and one over here being uh, complete peace and, and, and harmony. We're somewhere on that scale. We're probably not a 10, but we can very quickly be a 1, can't we? So let's look in verse 1 as James starts off his conflict prevention at at his advice. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, if somebody asked you that question and they just stopped at the first part, what causes fights among you, what would be your natural answer? When I walk in the kitchen and my teenagers are fighting, and I go, what's going on here? What are you fighting about? What's their natural answer? Just happened the other night, I walked, what are you fighting about? She hit me with her headphones. She won't stop singing, even though I asked her nicely. These aren't the fights that boys have. But this is is what my teenage girls do. The natural answer is always the other person made me do it. It's not me. I'm just the innocent victim. We, We pass the buck. We refuse the responsibility. And this has been the answer from the very start, right? You go back to the Garden of Eden, the Lord shows up, there's division between Adam. What happened? Well, the woman you gave me, right? It's always the other person. It's not our fault. But James won't let us, let them or us deflect this this way. He gets right to the heart of it and he says, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says, the reason you're warring and fighting 
out here with each other is actually because of the war within. The struggle inside you. The battle of your own passions. Now this isn't so much... When, when I first would read this idea, the, the struggle inside, I would kind of think the battle of, of the passions of kind of good and evil, right? The angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, and, and you know, you're having this struggle about what you're supposed to do. But that's not really what he's talking about here. He's talking about frustrated desires. There are things that I want that I can't seem to get. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's popularity, maybe it's friendship, maybe it's status, power, comfort, success. Not necessarily bad things, just things that I really desire, but I can't seem to get that thing, and, and, and it's elusive. So I'm frustrated, and, and I lash out. Maybe just indiscriminately on whoever is in the vicinity. We've all been there, right? Someone just mentions that we forgot to put our dish in the sink and suddenly we find ourselves like hur hurling this, you know, fiery ball of all our internal frustration across the room at them while they duck for their life. We've been on the receiving end of that too. Or maybe it's, it's specifically directed at that person who seems to have that thing we want and it came so easily to them. Why do they have this success? Why does everybody like them? So we go after them, as James says, in, in covetousness and murder. And you may, th may think that James' language here is, is a bit over the top and a, a bit strong. But uh, we all know, according to what Jesus says, that there's lots of ways to murder someone without actually laying a hand on them the murder of the heart. I always think of the phrase, I hate you. Because when I would say that, or one of my siblings would say that when we were little, my mom would go, <gasps> do you know what you are saying? You are saying you wish they were dead. And we would feel terrible. And my brother and I figured out a little way around it where I would say, I hate your guts. <laughs> I didn't actually hate them, I just hate their guts because they're kind of gross, so I'm not murdering them. Now, warring out here is because of the war in our hearts, the battle of frustrated desires and passions. It's the outworking of, of the wisdom from below that we saw in chapter 3, that worldly wisdom that's about selfish ambition. Look back at, at verse 16 in chapter 3 where he's describing it and he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition is, exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. We've let the worldly wisdom in and we are warring on the inside but, of course, the question is, why? We should know better. As believers, we, we don't have to be like this. We shouldn't be. And this is where James, I think, kind of delves into the real issue. He digs down to what lies beneath 
and, and kind of says to these Hebrews and us, hey, take a hard look at yourselves. And the first thing that he points out is he says, I think you are forgetting some things about God. What lies behind this is actually a forgetfulness of God. That's what's really going on. It's a problem in, in, the, in their thinking about God. We see this as James shifts his focus to their lack of prayer. So it's kind of a sudden shift out of nowhere at the end of uh, verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Here we have all these desires. They have all these desires, but they do not bring them to God. They do not supplicate. They, they do not ask for his help. Why is that? Well, simply, they've forgotten God's grace. They don't pray because they've forgotten that the God who saved them by grace is the gracious giver of all things to his children. James said it much at the beginning of this book when he was talking about wisdom. And he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, this is chapter 1, verse 5, let him get, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. He gives generously. Even if maybe you don't deserve it, he gives without reproach. And of course, James later says in 117, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Prayerlessness is a sign that we've forgotten this. Somehow we've lost track of the grace of God in our lives and thus we find ourselves pursuing these desires in the, in the flesh like the world where we must fight and quarrel and covet to take what we want, to go after that desire. But there's a second thing I think he points out they've forgotten about God. And that is his goodness. We see this in the next thing that he says about their prayer. Look what he says, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James admits, well, sometimes you do ask. Sometimes you do pray. But you ask wrongly. They want these things now only to satisfy their selfish desires. They just want God to rubber stamp their own selfish agendas and lusts. They won't come to God with their desires, trusting in his goodness, saying, Lord, shape me. Show me if my desires are right or wrong. I trust you with them. Answer as you will. Provide according to your pure and, and, and perfect Will. They don't pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray with all their desires. Father, your will be done. Your kingdom come. I trust in your goodness that you have the best for me. No, they are pridefully trusting in themselves and trying to co-opt God into their plans. They're treating God like a Kind of, their prayers are kind of like treating God like a, like a divine vending machine where you put in your, 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 your little prayer and you push the button for what you want, and if it doesn't come, you kick the machine. 
That's why they don't receive, he says. God doesn't countenance such prayers. So they circle back and dig in all the more with quarreling and selfish ambition and covetous ways of warring with each other to get what they want. And my friends, I think we should examine ourselves if we are struggling with each other for quarreling and fighting, whether in, in, in the church or in your family or in your marriage. It's not about the other party. It's not an external issue. It's coming from in here, this internal warring of desires and frustration, which is fostered and reflected in a prayerlessness in our lives or our twisted prayer that is selfish. And it's all rooted in us forgetting our gracious and good See, the problem is, is ultimately, ultimately theological, isn't it? I've gotten sucked into the wisdom of the world. I've lost a clear vision of my God, who he is. My thinking about him is small and warped, and I end up screaming at my wife and fighting with my brother and causing division in my family. You see, when we forget the grace and goodness of God. There's no grace and goodness this way. And when we remember God's grace and goodness, it motivates us to an authentic prayer that honors God and helps us deal with our selfish desires and, then, and thus promotes peace and grace this way. It comes back to our understanding of God. It's theological. So if you're forgetting God's grace... And there's quarreling and fighting in your life. That, that may be an indication of what's really going on. Have you, what, why is that going on? Have you been distracted by other things? Are you not regularly in the word? Are you not digging in with his family? So that his goodness and his grace are way in the background of your life. Now there's a second thing these Hebrews are forgetting that I think is adding to all this fighting and quarreling and that is themselves. Not only are they forgetting key things about God, they are forgetting some things about themselves. Look at verse 4 with me. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there are two things that are said about them here. First, they are cheaters, he says. He calls them an adulterous people. And, and second, he says they are enemies of God. Cheater enemies. That's a pretty strong indictment, isn't it? But it's not, it's not new, right? In the Old Testament, God described his relationship to Israel and his people uh, in, in these terms, as a bride and a bridegroom. 
They are his loved wife, and he is the faithful husband, but his people often went after the waves of the world following their selfish hearts, and he called them unfaithful and adulterous. And this Hebrew little church knows this analogy. They're very familiar with it. So James is saying loud and clear as he sees all this infighting coming out of the selfish desires of their hearts so that they're competing and quarreling like the world in selfish ambition. Don't you know what this means? It means you are two-timing God. You're taking on this other relationship with, with the world and its values. You're jumping into bed with all that the world is about. And God takes it personally. He is hurt. James says they're making him their enemy. They're stoking his anger. Just as a husband would be very angry to find his spouse with another person. And my friends, it's, it's one thing to have an enemy in this world. It's another thing to have God as your enemy. That's a sobering thought. We should check ourselves. You may say, well, God's not my enemy. I mean, he's not angry with me. He, he saved me. I'm his child. He loves me. He, he died for me. I sing songs to him. I pray to him. I go to church. We're, we're all good, me and God. Are you sure? Are you cheating on him? See, James, he, he calls them out. He calls it straight. You see, I think the, these religious Hebrews here have this tendency to deny this cheating dynamic in their lives, to live in denial of their of their two-timing ways, this double-mindedness, as James has called it, this twin-souledness that's going on inside them. That's why he says to them, do you not know, he says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's saying to them, quit pretending. Quit denying. He's calling for some self-assessment. He's calling for some honesty. And it's a call to us as well. We think we, we can have God and have our little mistress on the side. That mistress of wealth or status or sensual pleasure or success or comfort or a nursed hatred or jealous envy. And as long as we compartmentalize, we can pretend like everything is fine. Kind of like that businessman who has a girl in every city and comes home and puts on his ring, content to live his double life, convincing himself that he's a good husband. And James says, no, you're a cheater and an enemy of God. Now, like I said, this is sobering. And it can be a bit overwhelming as we look at our own hearts and question our, our motives because no one is pure. No one is unadulterated. We have to ask, is there religiosity 
that we've been living in that's allowing us to ignore our wandering from God, our duplicity, our cheating ways? Am I fooling myself? Well, if you're feeling a, a little conviction or at least a little concern, here's the good news. There are two things that James says about God here that are game-changing for adulterous people, for cheaters. First, he says that God is jealous. Do you see that in verse 5? There's this strange uh, phrase James quotes where he says that God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. It's a hard phrase in the, in the Greek. A lot of the scholars argue about it. But what we need to note is that it's not big-ass Holy Spirit. It's not yearning jealousy for his Holy Spirit that he put on, in us. It's the spirit of a smallest. It's the spirit of us. The spirit that he put in us when he made us. It's kind of the essence of who we are. Like a husband who loves his wayward wife so deeply that no matter what she's done, no matter how she strayed, he wants her to come back, to return home. He's jealous for her to be with him. We think of jealousy as a bad thing. This is a good jealousy. I think of the prodigal son's father standing on the hillside, looking into the distance, yearning for his son to come back, even though he can't even see him. He's not even there yet. Standing there longing, ready to receive him. God is jealous for us. And then James says a second thing about God. And to me, it's one of the most wonderful sentences in the Bible, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Our loving Father, who waits and yearns for his wayward children, is just ready with more grace. You know the grace that you felt when you first came to the Lord and gave your life over and, and received all his forgiveness and cleansing, that grace that just released you from the burden of your guilt and your sin and it brought peace and wholeness to your life, he has more for you. He is ready with more for all of us, no matter how we've strayed. To be honest, this is a hard one for me to get my mind around because I am so not like this. Right? You cross me once and I, I'll forgive you. Cross me twice, maybe over time. Cross me a third time, I'm done with you. That's my natural heart. That's where I'm at unless God works in me. My grace is so limited, but our God is full of grace. It's His very nature. It's a grace that is rooted in the very life of his son that he gave for us. That divine, perfect, pure, eternal life sacrificed is a wellspring of mercy that's never-ending for us. In the Gospel of John, he, he speaks about it this way. He says, 
For from his fullness, he's speaking of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. And if you look at the different translations in the Bible, you'll see it's sometimes translated grace following grace, sometimes grace heaped upon grace, because they can't seem to capture this idea. It's this endless flow of grace that heaps up. Many years ago, there was a, uh, an art exhibition in New York and uh, an artist submitted this really grand, large-scale painting of Niagara Falls, but they didn't, forgot to submit a title. So the gallery thought about it for a minute, and they just put up next to it, more to come. Niagara Falls. More to come. Captures it, doesn't it? Billions of gallons over thousands of years coming over, flowing over those falls, but there's always more to come, heaping up, billowing. That's God's grace, and it goes down to the very deepest crevices, the lowest lying areas of our souls, where all the darkness is. God's grace Keep flowing. That's our Savior. So James is calling them to be honest here. To look at their dysfunctional Christian relationships and community. To see that they're arguing and fighting with each other. And their lack of prayer and their twisted selfish prayer is the result of internal desires that have gone after the world to see that they are double-minded, twin-souled, trying to have a relationship with God and with this rebellious world, trying to have one foot in both camps, and it's destroying them. And it's inviting God's judgment, making them enemies. But God wants them back. He has more grace. So what should they do? If, if, if your eyes are maybe open to yourself this morning, how, how do we come back? How do we receive this grace? I'll look back at verse 6 again. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself to God. You see, there's so much pride in quarreling and fighting. There's so much pride in prayerlessness. It just says, I got this. I can do this without God. If people would just listen to me, if God would just approve my plans. And when we're fighting God and thinking this way, He is opposing us. It's a losing battle, but He is gracious to the humble. Submit, let go of your pride, submit to God. Yield your life over is the idea, your life and your will. Make him the ruler. 
This isn't, uh, by the way, an optional extra in the Christian life, right? It's not one thing we do, submission. It's how we come to Christ. It's how we received our salvation in the first place. It's how we are to live our lives every day, submitting our lives and our wills and our desires over to him. This is how we come to his grace. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, submission is not a popular concept in our culture. People don't like the word. It's like the S word. When I first moved, when our church first moved into this neighborhood, the pastor that was then here, Paul Reese and I, I was the assistant pastor, uh, joined this community of ministers, this community group. It was all ministers and ministry leaders from different ministries, and they just started it, and they asked, they tasked Paul and I to write a purpose statement for the group. And I can't remember the exact purpose statement we wrote, but it had something like this in it. Uh, In all we do, we strive to clearly and winsomely bring the gospel to the West Central community in both word and deed, so as to help people bring their lives into into submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and receive his salvation. When we brought that up, a couple people kind of had furrowed brows, and one of them said, you know, I just don't like that word submission. Another one said, yeah, this just doesn't work here. People don't really respond well to authority. And uh, we ended up thinking about it and thought, we, we can't really take this out. This is, what, this is what we're about. These are the words of Scripture. And we had to end up dismissing ourselves from the group. Submission. James doesn't flinch. He's calling them to submission in a culture of Roman authority. You want to talk about oppressive? James says it straight, and so must we. Because this is how we come to God's grace. We submit our lives to the one who is indeed our rightful king and judge and ruler, yet is waiting and yearning for us with open arms full of grace. It's actually a good person to submit to. And then James doesn't leave that just hanging in the air. He he spells out what it means. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Big part of it is he says, hey, turn away from the devil, from his temptations, from his evil ways, which are real and powerful. But note, they're not overwhelming. You can resist. And what happens when you resist? He flees away. I think we tend to have this over, you know, powerful view of the devil that he can just put it upon us. Maybe we get that from from the movies. He doesn't have rulership over you, Christians. When you resist, he flees. He runs away. He is this intimidating bully that runs away the minute you stand up and fight. So turn from the devil and turn 
to God, draw near to God. And what happens when we draw near to God? Does he flee away? Well, he draws near to us. He is there with open arms. Again, I think of the the prodigal son as he returns, embraced. And then in conjunction with this, turn away from the devil, turn to God, turn from sin, verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Give the actions, your hands of your life, and the attitudes of your life, your heart over to God. Give them over. I think of those warring desires inside talked about in verse 1, just submitting them over to the Lord. Pray authentically that he would mold them to his will and change yours. And then he says one more thing about this whole humbling and submitting posture. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Mourn your sin. As we submit to the Lord and turn to him, there must be mourning and grief. When the horrific reality of where we have been in our strain and what we've done is kind of admitted and faced, its full weight should hit us. There's no repentance without remorse. There's no submission without sorrow over our sin. There's no returning without weeping. I think of the prodigal son again. Do you think he came in weeping? Because we now own the relational damage and the hurt that we've caused our loving father. And and we know what it cost him. We know what it cost our father when we look to the cross. Costing the very life of his son. So we weep. It is right that we weep and grieve over our sin. But note this. This isn't where God leaves us. The Christian life isn't a life of joyless, continual sorrow and regret. God doesn't hold our face to the ground. He does the opposite. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is why James starts this book with, count it all joy, my brothers. James Albury, in his commentary, says of this mourning and, and, uh, and joyous posture of the Christian life, this is what he says, there should be no people more sad and yet more happy than Christians. The lower we are, the more lifted we are. It's the great paradox of the Christian life that we weep over sin while singing in astounded joy of our salvation. And what we need to see as we get to the end of this passage is that this submission and this humility 
this way before God brings a humility this way. Look at the last verses of our text. Look at verse 11. I'm just going to read this whole section. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Let the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother uh, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? There's a lot that could be unpacked here, and I won't get into all of it this morning, but do you see the main point? We're back where we started, aren't we? We're back to, to their community of relationships in the church where they've been fighting and competing and selfish ambition and, and coveting and arguing, and he's saying that if they're truly repentant and submitting, if it's real, it should affect things this way. They have been going at each other, speaking evil of each other, judging each other. There's no humility in it. In fact, he says in doing it, they're actually putting themselves over God's law, judging it because of course the greatest commandment the greatest law is not only to love God but to love your neighbor as yourself and if you follow the logic he says so you're making yourself God over each other to treat each other this way is the ultimate of arrogance and pride you see true humility and submission this way that receives God's grace We'll extend grace this way. How we treat each other in the end is about our view of God and our view of ourselves. It's theological. We may, may we live humble, submissive lives of authentic faithfulness to our God and submission and mourning and joy together. May that be what this family is about. May we follow our Savior in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for preserving these words uh, about this ancient church that come right down to us, to our lives, that expose what's going on in us, what the real reason of the quarreling and fighting and the struggles we have. Lord, help us to see it in ourselves. Help us to be humble before you. We ask for your grace this morning that we may live it with each other. Amen.